Take my lips and speak through them. Take our thoughts and think through them. Take our hearts and set them on fire with love for you. Unless you speak, nothing of significance will be spoken. Give us your word. Somewhere I heard about a bright young college student who had a part-time job in a large supermarket. And one day a woman came to him at the supermarket and said, uh, I want to buy half a grapefruit. And he said, uh, well, ma'am, I'll have to check with the manager. And he went toward the back of the store to find the manager, not realizing the woman was following him. He found the manager and he said, there's some nut out there who wants to buy half a grapefruit. Then he glanced over his shoulder and said, and this gracious lady is willing to buy the other half. <laughs> well, the manager was much impressed. And uh, later in the day, he pulled the young man aside and he said, uh, you're obviously quick on your feet, smart. You know, you could go a long way in this food business, retail uh, as well as wholesale. You could end up owning a a whole chain of supermarkets across the country. By the way, where do you come from? The young man said, I hail from Lancaster, Pennsylvania, the home of ugly women and great hockey teams. With distinct coolness, the manager said, my wife happens to come from Lancaster, <laughs> Pennsylvania. And the young man said, and what hockey team did she play on? <laughs> Now, don't you love to run into a young person like that who is quick-witted, yeah, a little bit brassy and bold, but full of confidence and potential? Jesus encountered a young man like that one day, and three of the four Gospels thought that the encounter was so significant that they told us about it. And each one of the three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, gave us unique details about the meeting with this young fellow. So what we usually do is blend the three together into a composite version, and we refer to the young man as the rich young ruler. Indeed, Mark tells us Jesus' reaction to him. Mark says Jesus loved him. But then you're probably thinking, well, that's not special. Jesus loved everybody. But that's not what the gospel writer Mark meant. What he meant was that Jesus recognized in this young fellow his sincerity and his awesome potential. In terms of disciples, this was the big one who got away. I, this was the powerful member of the Jewish establishment who if he could have been one to Christ, might have brought half the Jewish power structure with him. And one day, face to face with Jesus, he hovered there. He was powerfully attracted. He almost became a disciple of Jesus. But of course, almost is, is not good enough. Let's look at Luke's account of this encounter. Chapter 18, verse 18 where we read, a certain ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? 
And Mark's gospel tells us that the young man ran up and knelt before Jesus, uh, indicating his earnestness and how respectful he was of Jesus. Now, the Greek word we translate here as eternal life means much more than just a passport to heaven, though it means that. It means the quality of life here and now. Uh, a quality of life that is, is joyful, triumphant, fulfilling, abundant, as well as life after death. So the young man was asking, how can I get abundant life now, eternal life hereafter? By the way, those are still the two most wanted commodities in the 21st century. Abundant life now, eternal life hereafter. In verse 19, Jesus responds to the young man by asking a strange question, strange to us. Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. I think Jesus was really asking this young fellow, do you have a clue who I am? Is there even a little bit of faith in you? Because you know, even a little bit of faith is spiritual dynamite. It's not how big your faith is. It's how willing are you to step out with it. Even if it's a little bit, Jesus said, if you have faith even the size of a tiny mustard seed, you can say to that mountain, be moved and it'll be moved. Even a little bit of faith is an invitation for God to enter a life and to transform it. In verse 20, Jesus says, you know the commandments, but notice he does not quote all 10 of the commandments, just five. He quoted those that have to do with how you treat other people. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not give false witness, honor your father and mother. I wonder if Jesus was checking to see if this young guy, with all his obvious affluence, had become careless and callous toward other people. You know, sometimes that happens to affluent people. Sometimes affluent folks can love things and use people instead of what we should do, use things and love people. Jesus, I think, was probing to check on this young fellow with all his obvious wealth. With some degree of pride, the young man said, I've kept all those commandments from the time I was a little boy. But then in Matthew's account, the young fellow asked a painful question. What do I still lack? And I say to you today that there are a lot of folks in America, in, a, in America's churches even, who resemble this young fellow. Many of them are relatively well behaved, but lack something. Many of them keep almost all the rules, but have little real joy. Many of them go to church regularly, but don't have much peace of mind. Indeed, some of them are just bundles of anxiety. Many of them read the Bible with some regularity, but there's no real victory in their hearts. Many of you may know the name Bruce Larson. He's a well-known Presbyterian out on the West Coast. And uh, in a recent article, he told about attending a great Presbyterian conference in Omaha. Several thousand people came into this large auditorium. 
And the first item on the agenda was a worship service. And as the people came into the auditorium, each one was given a helium-filled balloon with the instructions that at any point in this worship service where you feel real joy in the Lord, release your balloon. Larson added, as a Presbyterian, he said, you know, we Presbyterians are so inhibited. We can't just say, amen, praise the Lord, hallelujah. We have to use a helium-filled balloon. And I might say that Methodists have those same inhibitions. In fact, you almost have to beg for an amen from most Methodists uh, these days. Well, it was a great worship service. Powerful preaching, wonderful music. And all during that worship hour, you could see balloons rising here, there, front, back, ascending, those balloons going up, declaring that the one who released them felt real joy in the Lord. But Dr. Larson said, the sad fact was at the end of the service, about one-third of the worshipers were sitting there holding their helium-filled balloon. Had felt no real joy in the Lord. And I say to you today that there are a whole lot of balloon clutchers in the churches of America. Many going through the motions of discipleship without really experiencing abundant life now and the confidence of eternal life later. In verse 22, Jesus makes both a diagnosis and a prescription. Obviously, the signs of wealth and status and royalty were all over this young guy. And so Jesus surmised that maybe his soul was in the bank with his stocks and bonds. So Jesus said, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven, and then come follow me. Now, folks, every time I read that, it sends shivers down my spine, and I'll tell you why. Let's suppose that tonight, in a vision so graphic and clear that I can't blame it on pizza that I had the night before, in a real vision, the Lord comes to me and said, Brother Bill, I want you to get up tomorrow and go sell your house and your cars, cash in your 401k, and donate all that to charity. And then I want to send you as a foreign missionary to Zambia in Africa. Now, folks, I would have a hard time with that. I might ask the Lord to put it in writing. Maybe have it notarized. And I would sure need your help in breaking the news to my wife. I promise you that. So I really try to cut this guy some slack because Jesus was laying on him a huge challenge. Just awesome if you think about it. Now, Jesus was not saying that all persons must liquidate their, their assets in order to become disciples. No. Indeed, if you look at John chapter 3, you'll find Jesus meeting with another rich person named Nicodemus. He didn't say, Nicodemus, you got to get rid of your property and everything you own. No. He did say, Nicodemus, you must be born again. But he did not require that he liquidate his assets. You see, money is morally neutral. It can do great good or great harm depending on who controls it. I mean, money built this beautiful sanctuary. Money built those magnificent new buildings we dedicated just a, a month ago. Money can do great good or great harm. 
Nevertheless, I must add this, money is the most seductive false god in America. More Americans go to hell every year because of love of money than because of any other form of idolatry. Jesus was really saying to this young man, you're carrying a security blanket around that you depend on more than you depend on God. God will not be co-champion in your tournament of favorites. That false God must be dethroned so that the King of Kings and Lord of Lords can ascend to the throne of your life and then and only then will you experience abundant and eternal life. You see, we human beings were created by God with a desire and a need to worship. But we are free to choose the object of our worship. But we're going to worship something. There are no real atheists anywhere. People who worship nothing. No. Whatever comes first in your life is what you worship. And everybody has something in place number one. Now, there are some people who are like the rich young ruler. Money, money is their, is their commander, is their first commitment. And it doesn't have to be a whole lot of money. And one can even be retired and, and obsess continually about my 401k. Sometimes the money and the status go together. And the object of one's life could be, if only I could become an officer in the corporation. If only I could become a partner in the law firm. And the status false God can even apply to the young. If only I could get elected homecoming queen or cheerleader or most popular our student government president, if only. There are some people whose false God is health, and goodness knows in America right now we're getting a lot of attention to health and health care. Some people obsess about it continually. Some go online and read every medical journal they can get, and so many imagine every symptom they read about. And if you do that long enough, you can actually make yourself sick. Now, we are supposed to take care of these bodies, but not worship them. We're going to leave them behind. These are tents. We're going to leave them behind one day, and in heaven we're going to get perfected bodies, resurrected bodies. We're going to leave these behind. So we should take care of them, but not obsess about them, and certainly not worship them. And then there's some who worship family. And I've seen instances of this across the years. Some of the saddest cases are when a parent wants to live out what he wanted to accomplish himself, but didn't, but wants it to be realized in his child. Oh, I wanted to become a great quarterback, but I didn't. But my kid is going to. And then sometimes particularly parents who have only one child, an only child, it's so tempting to worship, to idolize that child instead of love that child. Family members, especially children, need to be loved, not worshiped. When we idolize a child, we load him or her with so much emotional freight that it can actually make the child emotionally ill. Family members are supposed to be 
loved, not worshipped. And then there are countless other false gods in America. A cursory review of popular TV and movies will tell you that many Americans worship sex. And let me hasten to add that sex shared by husband and wife in the covenant of marriage is one of God's great gifts. But when sex becomes the center or the focus of one's life, it always becomes distorted and destructive. I'm told that some of the most popular websites on the internet are pornographic sites and that millions of people go there every day and literally worship their false god. And then there are other people who make a hobby into an ultimate commitment. Yes, it can happen. Even golf can become a false god. And I say this as a mediocre and mildly addicted golfer. You know, there is scripture about golf. It's in Romans 7 where Paul said, the things I don't want to do, I do. The things I do are not what I want to do. Wretched creature that I am. That's a commentary on golf. And then there are people who worship their alma mater or its sports teams. Yes, you can worship Gamecocks and Tigers and Blue Devils and Wildcats and Bulldogs. In a former church I served, a man, and I'm going to call him John, that was not his name, I don't want you to search him out. His blood ran orange, if you know what I mean. Oh, he loved Clemson. And uh, he was a successful professional and gave a great deal of money to Clemson. In fact, for several years, he was the president of their IPTE club, the primary fundraising organization for Clemson Athletics. I was visiting him one day in his office, and I know it was in the fall of the year because it was during stewardship season at the church when we uh, were challenging the people to pledge toward the new budget for the coming year of the church. So we got to talking about the church and its goals for the year and, and the campaign, and John asked me a dangerous question to ask a preacher. He said, Brother Bill, how much do you think I ought to pledge to the church this year? And with a flash of inspiration that I know came from the Holy Spirit, I said, I want you to pledge one dollar more than you gave to Clemson last year. He almost fainted on me. <laughs> he turned white as a sheep. And I don't know whether he did it or not because I don't know what he gave to Clemson, but I was absolutely serious. Because you see... There's only one institution on earth that's going to make it to heaven. And it's not Clemson and it's not Carolina. It's not even the United States of America. It's the church of Jesus Christ. So I wanted him to say by his giving that he loved the church even more than he loved his beloved Clemson. If anything other than God comes first in your life, it will cause anxiety and discord. Why? Because anything other than God can fail you or forsake you or die. And if you've got a God who can fail you or forsake you or die, the very ground is trembling underneath you. On the other hand, if God Almighty comes first, nothing can threaten your absolute security. 
There is no emergency that can come up that his grace won't be sufficient for. He's the only one who is utterly dependable, utterly faithful. He's the only one who can deliver real peace and joy. Verse 23 is one of the saddest statements in all of Scripture. When he, the rich young ruler, heard this, he became very sad because he was a man of great wealth. Oh, this young fellow had caught a glimpse of a magnificent God-centered life. There was something in the eyes and spirit of Jesus that just sent shivers all up and down his spine. And he knew instinctively that this was a decisive day in his life, that this was a momentous crossroads after which he would never be the same. But all oh, the price was so high. Money had always been his magic carpet toward connections and pleasure and entertainment. How could he possibly live without it? And the other gospels tell us that he went away sorrowful. And you don't have to be a psychiatrist to know how he turned out. He became a grumpy old man. Have you ever seen a grumpy old man? It's sad. That's what he became, disillusioned with his money and always looking back wistfully to the day when he almost became a disciple of Jesus. Jesus Christ gave himself totally for us and there's only one proper response, to give him first place in our lives. Halfway discipleship won't get it. The late great Baptist preacher from Memphis, Adrian Rogers, used to say, Christianity is not a cafeteria line where you say, I'll have a little salvation right now, but no lordship right now, thank you. Oh, no. God doesn't offer that deal. Jesus cannot be your Savior unless you also let him be your Lord. God will not agree to be co-champion in your tournament of favorites. He must have first place or no place. Any and every false God must be dethroned so that the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords can ascend to that throne and he and he alone can supply abundant and eternal life. Let me close with a modern parable. There was a little five-year-old girl named Jenny and she and her mother were at the Target store one day and when, when, when they went to the checkout counter Jenny noticed a strand of white imitation pearls in a pink foil box. And she wanted those pearls badly. So she tugged on her mother's sleeve. Mommy, please buy those for me. Her mother looked at the price, $4.99. She said, honey, do you really want them? Yes, ma'am, I really do. So she purchased the imitation pearls for Jenny. And oh, Jenny loved them. She wore them all the time. They made her feel so dressed up and so grown up. She wore them all the time, except when she went swimming because her mother told her if she did, that would turn her neck green. Otherwise, she had her pearls on all the time. Jenny had a wonderful father. And one of his most cherished responsibilities was every night that he was in town, um, after she had had her bath, 
he would read her a Bible story from, you know, those big story books with all the pictures. He would read her one of those Bible stories and then listen to her prayer, kiss her and tuck her in. He did that every night he was in town. If he was out of town, mom took over that responsibility. One night when just before he kissed her and tucked her in, he said, honey, would you give me your pearls? She said, no, daddy, can't do that. You know, they're special. He didn't make a big deal about it. Kissed her, tucked her in. About a week later, he asked the same question. Would you give me your pearls? No, daddy, I'll give you any other toy I've got, but not my pearls. They're special. Again, no big deal. He kissed her, tucked her in. A couple of nights later, when dad came in, Jenny was sitting in the middle of the bed with her legs crossed and her chin was sort of trembling and there was a tear on her cheek. And daddy said, honey, what's wrong? And she handed those pearls to him and said, here, if you want them so much, you can have them. Then there was a tear in daddy's eye. He reached out and took those pearls and with his other hand, he reached in his pocket and pulled out a blue velvet box. And he said, honey, those pearls you got from the Target store, they're fakes, not the real thing, counterfeit. But your mother and I love you so much, we wanted you to have the real thing. And he opened the box and there was a genuine strand of pearls. And Jenny was thrilled. Aren't we like Jenny sometimes? Clutching to our hearts some fake, counterfeit, false God and allowing it to dominate our lives, even though it cannot bring joy or peace or fulfillment. And God is so patient. He just waits, hoping that we'll come to the point where we're willing to surrender the fake so he can supply the genuine. You know, Daddy was carrying around that blue velvet box for quite a while, just waiting for Jenny to surrender the fake so he could give her the real. And God Almighty waits lovingly, patiently for us to be willing to dethrone that fake false God so that he, the King of kings, Lord of lords, can ascend to the throne of our lives and deliver what we really need Abundant life now, eternal life hereafter. Oh, it would have been so wonderful if the rich young ruler had been willing to trade in his money for the Lordship of Christ. And there may be some people here today who, even though they give lip service to Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, in their heart of hearts, they know that something or someone else is in first place. But you can change that today. And the first part of the change can consist of a prayer, which I'm going to lead us in in just a moment. And I'm going to break this prayer down line by line, hesitating between lines, so that if this prayer expresses what is truly on your heart, you can say those words silently to God. With heads bowed and eyes closed, let us pray. Dear Lord Jesus, at times I've tried to give you just a part of myself.
all the while offering supreme allegiance to some other person or thing. Now I know that's a recipe for frustration and discord. Therefore, today, I commit more of myself to Christ than I ever have before. I invite the living Christ to rule within my heart and life. Amen.